Welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and this week we are joined by Andrew McCormick, one of the founding partners at fintech-focused Valor Ventures, which was founded in 2010 and has raised north of $2 billion. Before starting Valor, Andrew worked closely with Peter Thiel at Clarium Capital, Teal Capital, and PayPal. I had such a fun time having this conversation with Andrew, given how many non-consensus and contrarian insights he brought to the table. We really hope you enjoy this conversation with Andrew. And without further ado, let's get right into it. This episode of Venture Unlocked is brought to you by Omni. Omni is an investment analytics company dedicated to improving private capital markets. Omni's proprietary technology digitizes hard-to-track, unstructured data from private transaction agreements and organizes it in a structured database through an intuitive dashboard. For investors of all sizes, the insights that are provided by this data improve the manager's ability to build strategy and make better decisions. Today, Omni tracks data from over 250,000 private market transactions to provide anonymous, aggregated market benchmarks. I'm also incredibly excited how Omni's solution helps fund managers provide more insightful and accurate reporting to their investors. To learn more, check them out at www.omni.fund. That's A-U-M-N-I dot fund. Listeners of Venture Unlocked can sign up for 20% off when you mention Venture Unlocked. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on. This is going to be a fun conversation given your uh, varied background, which I do want to get into to start. So can you maybe start with your story starting in tech? Sure. I went to Penn 94 to 98, which was maybe, given the economic climate at the time, the the greatest year ever to get a job on Wall Street. And I was such a poor student that uh, while all my friends were going to Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs as analyst programs, I found a job with a, a local tech startup in, uh, in West Conshohocken, in Philadelphia, coincidentally right down the hall from Half.com. And uh, it was a company called eCount, and they were a payments business and sort of did something similar to what PayPal did. And I was there for about a year, year and a half, and uh, it was an awesome experience, just like run by great guys, and they, I think they ultimately sold themselves to City. After a while, I, I sort of parlayed that into a job at Yahoo, and not, not Yahoo in, in California, but Yahoo's Latin America group in Miami. So in 99, 2000, I moved down to Miami to do, I was a business development associate, like one of the original Miami tech bros. 23 years before uh, is, is now become a thing. Yes. Yeah. I was there before Keith, I like to remind. But so I was, I was very familiar with PayPal from the company before. And while I was at Yahoo, I, I worked on PayDirect, their, their competitor a little bit. But then you know, as 2000 dawned and it sort of was clear to many people that things were not uh, as good as they were, in particular at Yahoo. So I, like many young people, had my eyes on the various job boards such as they existed at the time. And there was a, a job posting. There used to be this way that you could just post to kind of like the internal BBS of different universities. And I saw a job posting to, for a biz dev associate at PayPal. And it would have actually been working for Reed and Keith. And uh, I kind of I like started chasing these guys up uh, over, you know, first the spring and then the whole summer and got a few conversations in, but they were always super duper busy. 
And finally they agreed to fly me out to California. And the day before I went out there, a guy named Sal Giambanco, who, who, who is the HR head for PayPal and a great guy also called me up and he said, Hey, you know, we were thinking about this other role. Like it doesn't pay as much and it's, it's sort of administrative in some ways, but like, you know, the, the pay, the, the CEO kind of needs like a, a bag man, you know, like a Reggie love type figure. Uh, you just do what he's doing. And would you be interested in that? And I was like, yeah, definitely. Let's do that. So they flew me out to Palo Alto and I think I started interviewing at eight o'clock in the morning and I didn't meet Peter until about seven o'clock at night. Everybody wanted to see who this person was going to be in between them and Peter. And at the time, you know, he was just in the middle of a bullpen of people. I think my, my first order of business was to, to commandeer a, a conference room and put my desk in front of the door. And that was, that was, a, as you can imagine, a totally wild ride. It was July of 2001. And, um, we, we're working on getting ready to IPO. The bubble had burst and we were going to be the first tech company to go public. And so I, you know, I worked a lot with Kenny Howery, who went on to found Founders Fund with Peter uh, and Peter and to put together the IPO roadshow presentation. Anyway, this is like very long winded. So like I, I, I ended up working at PayPal. And then after eBay bought the company, went along with Peter uh, to start Clarium, uh, which was a macro-focused hedge fund. And he sort of was like done with tech stuff. He was back to being a hedge fund guy, and he wanted to, you know, basically be the next George Soros. It was all about rates, trades, and the yen, and peak oil, and things like that. And um, I just wasn't really into it. It just seemed very pointy-headed for me. And um, so I, I told Peter one day, I was like, I, I think um, I'd like to go to business school. And that now sort of very obviously he thought, what a stupid idea. You should never do that. Why don't, why don't you just start a business? That's what a lot of us were doing at the time. And Peter was funding a lot of that. Um, and he's like, look, you, you love to entertain. You're a really good cook. Like, why, why don't we start a restaurant? Like literally like the worst advice you could ever give to a human being. But we did that. Uh, so the first one was called Frisant. Uh, and it was this big restaurant down in Jackson Square, right next door to Kokari, if you remember. It was only it was open from about 2004 to 2008. We started another restaurant that was first called Liola and then um, then became Tacolicious, which still exists and is run by a, a great guy named Joe Hargrave. But in 2008, I, I went back to, to Clarium and again was kind of in this chief of staff-ish type of role. And I met uh, my partner in Villar, James, at that time, who, who was an M&A lawyer at Skadden Arps and uh, was best friends from law school with Peter's current lawyer, Bruce Gibney, who, uh, who also, you know, later was a partner at Founders Fund. Peter and, and Bruce got into uh, one of their periodic um, disagreements, and, and Bruce left for a time, and James found himself the general account, having been an M&A guy, the general counsel of a hedge fund of about seven billion under management a few days before Lehman went under. And if you recall those times, they changed the rules for hedge funds like every single day. It was like today you can't short sell and tomorrow you have to like do all these forms. And it was a real crazy, crazy time also. 
which I didn't actually have much to do with. It was like I was part of this proto family office, like many family offices that get started within an operating business. And instead of a ball bearing company in Wisconsin, it was, uh, it was a hedge fund in New York. Um, and I worked on a lot of Peter's sort of core personal projects, some of which, you know, are publicly known nowadays and some of which are, are not, but it did mean that I worked with legal all the time. You can do a lot of things wrong as a billionaire, but the only way to really screw your life up is to go to jail. So sort of like me and legal work together a lot on a lot of stuff. And, um, and James and I just like working together a lot. It is incredibly rare to find someone who comes from big law, even like a decade at a big law firm and is able to leave behind the culture of billable hours of risk mitigation and transform their thinking into what do we need to do to be commercial? Like, how do we think about the risks in the right way and get to the solution that, you know, my principal wants to get to. Uh, and James is sort of like one of those super rare creatures who can do that. At the time, the hedge fund basically performed such that it no longer was viable as a manager of other people's money. And we all moved back to San Francisco. We were in New York for a little bit. And then we moved back to San Francisco. And Founders Fund had sort of really flourished during that time. And Peter just started putting folks in business who had been working with him for a long time. Very similar to the Julian Robertson Tiger Cub model. Um, and he did some on the hedge fund side and he did some on the venture side. And in those early days, I'd say like 08, 09, 2010, Mithril got started at Jay Royan's fund and we got started. And in the beginning, it was no more complicated than hey, everybody in our group's looking in California because obviously we have awesome deal flow there. But what about outside California? You know, James and I like working together and we just got, kind of got on a plane and stumbled into, through blind luck, a couple of amazing fintech companies where we led the early rounds in Zero and TransferWise. So I think, I think Zero is still, despite the the downfall of fintech in the public markets, a deck of corn and, uh, and transfer wise really ought to be. And I believe will be again soon. Uh, but that, that, that kind of like at that point, we're really just investing on Peter's balance sheet and it gave us the tailwind to, to spin out of Teal Capital and kind of like give it a go as a career. We thought New York would be a better place to base ourselves. San Francisco, especially at that time, was not is, was not really a great place for fintech investing. It's very developer focused, so you, you would have things like Plaid and Stripe, but you didn't have a lot of what we thought would be more interesting to us: the application layer, where you're you're touching consumers' money or at least small businesses' money, and that's that's more or less what we've always focused on. That's a great trip down memory lane. And I suspect that working with folks like Peter and Keith provided you with some unique insights that helped form the Valor strategy. But can you tell us a little bit about the origin story and maybe some of the things that you took away from the past experiences that really helped form the vision? We don't drink all the Peter World Kool-Aid, but one thing I think he is a truly a genius at and, and has always instilled in the rest of us is a deep respect for thinking about how do humans in groups make decisions and why do they do that? 
that way. How, you know, like there's a lot of talk about incentive alignment, but it's, it's true. It's like, it really, I think dramatically affects our industry. If you combine that with the way that the returns get dispersed through this so-called power law, where you're really just trying to find the one company that's worth all of the other companies, you, you should rightly be focused on making your investment decision process as pure as it can be, as free of outside influence as possible. And ironically, we're, we're in a style of investing where there is a possibility of asymmetric return in our portfolio, but yet almost every firm does things in a way to like exclude that from the way that they invest. Right. And it's because there's an inherent principal agent conflict in every venture capital partnership of more than one person. Right. So basically I can illustrate it easily for you this way. Out of all the GPs you've ever talked to, do you think they've ever had this conversation? One of them stands up on Monday morning and announces to the partnership, everyone, I've listened very carefully to you today. And I, I think my companies are great, but I, I know yours are better than mine. So let's put all the follow-on capital in your companies, and that will be better for the fund's returns. Sure. Maybe it's happened. There's a lot of weirdos in our business, but uh, they're probably not still working in venture capital if they say things like that, right? So you have this thing where the, the principal, the fund, and its returns are just misaligned with each individual agent, which is the VC. And that's the typical way that it works. And so that's very inefficient. That leads to things like, we led the series A and the company 10X is their revenue. And we would like for another firm to lead the series B. That's totally insane, right? Like you would never find a public markets manager saying, I did all this research. I found this tiny little small cap company. They're doing amazing. They 10X their revenue. Do you know other hedge funds who would like to invest? They're just going to try and own every basis point of equity that they can. But we do it now because we can't, we, we're playing a zero-sum game with the most competitive, intelligent people that we know. People who are trained by this job to speak on many different levels, but not exactly saying what they really mean. Which is what they really mean is, if I approve this investment for you, that means there's less for me. And if there's less for me, I might not get enough from my company, and it might not succeed and I might not progress in my career or through this firm. So I think that that leads to a lot of the bad vibes in this industry that are directed towards VCs. It's because you're so misaligned with your partners that you can't, you just can't trust like that your company is better than my company. Or even if you trust that, if you know that, like you're not incentivized to, to support that. And so other, other people have different ways of managing this, right? The typical way is the sun god model. So those VCs who are known only by their first name get to do whatever they want. Peter, Vino, Doug, they can do whatever they want, right? They can lead all the rounds in a company. They can peanut butter Airbnb across five funds. Uh, and as long as they're right, the LPs will be happy. And all the other partners are mainly concerned with manipulating them into thinking their stuff's great too. Uh, so there's the sun god model. That's the normal way. If you've ever been 
involved in the restaurant industry in the United States, you know, the very best run ones are the where the waiters pool their tips. And so that leads to like the benchmark model, which is um, amazing. You know, you've been there a month, you've been there 10 years, your economics are the same, and that leads to a lot more alignment. But it does require like this, you know, you, the founders have to give up all their equity and so on. And that's just, that's just quite rare to get a group of people to agree to do that. James and I are not quite, not quite there. Uh, maybe one day. Where we fall in is probably somewhere in the rise of the solo GP class. We work on all the companies together. We take the pitch meetings together. We go to the board meetings together. We try to do all the talking with the entrepreneurs together. And really, even in our own minds, forget who, whoever heard of the company first or who, who might have been even slightly more enthusiastic about it. Attribution is toxic, I think, to investment returns. And so as long as the sun shines on us both or the little dark rain cloud follows us both, we are free to take the kinds of risks that you ought to take in a portfolio capable of asymmetric return. And that, that means concentration. That means high ownership. It means that you should be able to invest relatively larger proportions of your fund in the initial checks to get that high ownership, whether you're investing in 2021 or 2012, right? You got to be able to take that big swing to get above 20% ownership. And then in the follow-on, you should probably be leading the next round in some subset of your initial investments and getting closer to 30% ownership. And whether your fund's 100 million or a billion, that is a heck of a lot easier to succeed when you own 30% of a company that then goes on to become a very big outcome. And that's, that's really how we think about our business, that first and fintech is a is a vehicle that allows for more of that type of concentration. It's a very big sector of the economy. So many interesting insights there to unpack. And in an area that I'd love to first focus on is in order to operate a model that may be slightly contrarian, certainly is different than how a traditional venture fund invests and operates, you still need to have support from LPs. What we've seen pretty consistently is LPs, they want something that is differentiated, but when it feels too different, there's often this state of paralysis. Maybe you can walk us through how those first few fundraises were when you were describing to people the strategy that you wanted to employ. Everybody always asks for differentiation until you actually provide it, and then they don't want that. Uh, so it was very hard to raise the first few funds. Look, it's it's always hard for emerging managers to raise money. It was hard back then. It's hard today. There were plenty of IC meetings where they were like, what? It's two guys? They do how many companies per fund? Forget about it. It it really just took, and like, you know, I'm not a great salesperson, so I probably didn't enunciate like the reasons we were doing it very clearly. But over time, the track record was enough and we did, you know, it's, it's the LP world's fairly small. And I think there are people out there who are looking for people who think differently. Our insistence on keeping it just James and I, like we don't, we don't have analysts or principals or any junior staff at all is just year after year shows that 
we want to keep our decision-making process the same. The same as it was in fund one and fund two, the same as it will be in fund nine and so on. And they can, they can believe that because it's literally this two same people. And if anything, it, it improves because we have the same set of data that grows over time about what works in our model and what doesn't work. And we can, we can kind of tweak it without worrying about politics. It, and, and as long, look, there's a 8 million ways to die in the West and there's lots of different ways to win. So other, other partnerships can find their way to win. But what I would say is the ones that end up succeeding are the ones that keep the alignment of what's good for each partner as close together as they can be. I was looking through your materials before this conversation. There's a number of things that stood out to me, one of which was portfolio construction. As I mentioned before, many traditional early stage venture funds have 20 to 40 core positions. Within a portfolio, you have historically had six to 10 companies. And I'd love to hear from you how you think about mitigating risk of small portfolios and really the benefits of smaller portfolios with more ownership versus larger portfolios where you have more shots at goal to potentially get a real power law type of outcome. It's a little bit bigger now. They're typically more like 12 to 16, but some of those are follow-ons from companies we already are on the board of. But yeah, usually six to eight new companies per per fund. FinTech itself allows for more of that. Um, you know, when I was in the restaurant business, you you would typically hear something like 90% of restaurants fail. Well, the local pizza slice shop and the new Danny Meyer restaurant, both restaurants, and they're getting lumped into that statistic, right? So it's not it's not the case that 90% of consumer fintech companies fail. Right. So we can we can improve our chances by taking fewer risks. We don't want to take technology risk and we don't have to. We don't want to take new markets risk or new business model risk. And we generally don't have to. We know how credit cards and banking services and insurance policies are supposed to work at scale and they're supposed to make money. So really, at the early stage at Series A, we can be laser focused on just finding the right teams. It's an execution path that's not easy, but it's at least relatively straightforward. You're building products for people who are not well served by the existing industry. You have the advantage of using technology the incumbents can't because they're kind of locked into a tech stack that works too well in a way. The mainframes and the COBOL are actually really fast and the COBOL has been debugged for 35 years now and it doesn't make mistakes. And if you put it in AWS, even that goes down sometimes. And whatever fancy new programming language you might want to use is going to have some bugs. So you you have this advantage of being able to work in a small group, well-known to each other. You don't have big company problems. You can incentivize each other with equity instead of in-year profitability, where most people at banks are paid out of a bonus pool. So that that removes a lot of the risks that would normally increase the number of companies you'd want to have in a fund. I would also point out that it may it may have actually even more to do with just how many partners there are and how many analysts there are. Like everybody needs a turn. If uh, if Phyllis is the firm founder and she brings in a deal uh, and it's obviously terrible, everyone will say, it's great, boss. It's great. We love it. You're a genius. You still got it. 
because she's going to determine your economics in the next fund. And if, if James brings in a deal and it's approved, you know, like now there's like the, the little cookie is getting another bite out of it at each time. There's less and less. Uh, and then I bring in a deal and everyone just rejects. It. And so my second deal and my third deal and by the fourth deal, oh man, Drew's just, he looks so glum and gloomy around the office. Is he going to quit? Is he going to like give me the stink eye in the pickup line at school in Palo Alto? Like, Maybe, maybe next time people are a little bit more emotionally moved to give poor old Drew like a win, right? So it, it's it's like, is it really because twenty five companies is the ideal number, or is it because they have five partners, or six partners, or ten partners, and everybody needs a little bit of a budget to do some stuff? Because otherwise, why are they even there? I think it's such an interesting point uh, in terms of thinking about the the number of companies often as a byproduct of the number of a mouse you have to feed within a partnership versus some historic view on what actually produces the best returns. The question I'd love for you to maybe answer is with six to eight companies, there's also a higher degree of risk that you have a, a certain flame out or a company that's a high flyer that at some point along the road goes to nothing. E.g. BlockFi. Right, exactly. I mean, you, you've seen it in, in terms of your portfolio. But how do you get comfortable in a scenario like that when so many other firms, while venture is risk capital, are actually doing anything but taking risk because of the, the chance of actually burning out and not being able to raise a fund because you had one fund with six companies and none of the six companies became anything? There are returns maximizing strategies and there are career prolonging strategies. And I think most people default to the latter. And it's rational that they do, because if they make one mistake, then they're done. In our setup, we can make the mistakes to allow us to pursue returns maximizing strategies. And even when a company like BlockFi blows up, which by the way, was our biggest by cost, biggest by nav investment ever, it doesn't actually sink any one fund. And there's no real political repercussion because we've all agreed on each step of the way what we were going to do. So it didn't turn out the way that we wanted it to. But that's that's just life in the big city. You know, that's life in venture capital. Loss aversion is so much more powerful than any other emotion that we have in this style of investing. And it's the most toxic to returns. If you go back and you look in PitchBook or whatever at the worst returning venture funds of all time, of of all time, at the very bottom of the list, they were run by the giants of our industry, literally like the Ne Plus Ultra legends, John Doerr, Vinod Kosal, like those clean tech funds of the early aughts. Some of them even failed to return one times the money. And the idea was absolutely correct, right? Like this, this today, I think it's actually probably a pretty profitable line of investing, but the timing was wrong. So therefore wrong. And it's like, I think loss aversion leads to this, right? You had the dot-com bubble, you had the dot-com burst. It was so painful for everyone. And so some people were just like, I don't want to go through that again. It's not like the thesis was different. It's not like the promise was different. It's just that people had experienced very, very significant pain. And so 
if you if you have a structure where there's more trust rather than less, you are able to handle that pain and digest it. I, I've come to believe that the core thing to learn in my life, in our business, is how to proceed through the seven stages of grief as quickly to acceptance as, as possible, right? The shock doesn't help. The bargaining doesn't help. The anger doesn't help. Nothing helps until you get to acceptance and then you figure out, okay, well, what are we going to do? And how are we not going to overreact to what happened? Because it hurt. And I think that is a weird thing to think about in investing. And, and, it, and it's only, it only works if you have this possibility of asymmetric return, right? Most kinds of investing, you don't ever want to take a zero. In our kind of investing, in some ways, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If, you, if, if there are six companies in our fund and five of them are zeros and one is a thousand X, obviously it didn't matter. So the only thing that matters, it's a trite cliche thing to say, it's the magnitude of the wins. But how do you structure yourself to always have the best shot at that? One is externally focus on a sector that is going to have more big outcomes for relatively less risk. So we don't do within fintech some of the most exciting stuff in so-called web three, you know, no DAOs, no direct token ownership and so on. Just because I don't want to both take the team risk and a new model risk. Like, is this even a thing? Is it even going to persist? I don't know. I can't tell the future. I don't try to. Such a good point when you talk about loss aversion versus return maximization and the latter provides more career risk for an individual investor. That's why you typically have larger portfolios. You have investors that often invest alongside other more name brands, invest in areas that have a lot of overall momentum. And I do think that what you've done is not only has been, you know, a well-performing strategy, but if done correctly, can uh, indeed bring these massive alpha type of returns versus just playing venture beta. You know, another aspect of how I think about your model, which is, you know, you do raise a fund every one to two years. You are constantly, in many cases, doing cross-fund investing where you're leading rounds in companies that you've already invested. One of the lessons that I remember you saying once in a prior conversation is, there were times along the road where you had companies that broke out and you had the opportunity to generate some secondary liquidity. And you did that. And one of the lessons that you extracted was that those were actually buying opportunities along the way up for the, the most successful companies. And I'm curious, given what we've seen over the last seven months, where not only has the, the balloon effectively deflated, but within fintech, it's deflated even more. Is that a lesson that you still believe to be true? Yeah, like we, we should obviously be more considerate in each individual case with each company about our valuations at all time historical highs. So there's some companies likewise where I know what Christo's doing. I know what he's going to do for the next 10 or 20 years. He's just, he's like the Jeff Bezos of fintech. He's just going to relentlessly grind this market to where no one can compete with his cost. And selling at $3 billion or 
5 billion or 6 billion. It's just like, I, I just don't think it makes sense. So if you have this portfolio capable of asymmetric return and there's 10 things in it, even if you're like the best picker ever and you pick the local maxima in price nine out of 10 times, well, our little Murphy's law is going to mean that the 10th time you were the guy who sold Shopify at the IPO or you sold Facebook at the IPO. I know a guy who sold Facebook at the IPO. And those crimes of omission, right, of the opportunity cost, those magnitudes end up being dramatically bigger. The gain that you got from like kind of optimizing when you exited. Now, look, I think that's, I think that's a kind of a high level way to think about it that I still stick with. But the fact is, is like one of Peter's criticisms of us was like, you guys have always like great thoughts about entering. You have no thoughts about exiting. So there's probably a lot more tactical thinking about each individual business model. What kind of market are we in? You know, it's not like any of us in 21 didn't realize that this was crazy. So there, there could have been more exiting. I don't, but I think it's a limited thing. It's like, maybe you get your basis for a few times back. Other than that, you should, you should still believe in the power, regardless of what stage you're in. Uh, agreed. And it's a difficult balance because on one hand, showing DPI for a lot of people is a great illustration of not only performance, but money back in LP pockets, which often leads to another fund being raised with less friction. And I, I do, again, we don't know where the markets are going to go. This is obviously something that we haven't really seen for 13 years. We saw a two-month blip in March of 2020 that lasted really through the end of uh, May of 2020. But it does seem like the, uh, the market has reset. And I think overall, we would view this as a very healthy resetting of the market, both from a valuation standpoint but also from a risk standpoint, I think when capital is so abundant, as a company, your major metrics and the rubric in terms of how people run their businesses is typically top line growth, right? Grow really quickly. The next round of funding is going to be there. You kind of rinse and repeat along the cycle. And when capital becomes more scarce like it is right now, operating discipline generally does improve within companies. And presumably within your portfolio, you're seeing that as well. You know, what really didn't work in 21 wasn't, it wasn't the prices per se. More directly, it was that entrepreneurs would take less dilution per round. You know, we saw, we saw more than a few rounds where the Series A lead bought 10 or 11%. And I just don't think that the math works right? Like you, you're, you're still going to have lots of dilution after that. And you can end up, you can end up with, you know, if you have a 650 ish million dollar fund, like we do owning low single digits of a company by the time the IPO, that doesn't work. And so what, what was bad about that vintage was low ownerships overall. I think what's What's better now is, yes, like people are much more focused on capital efficiency. We're all using David Sachs's wonderful burn multiple, you know, calculations. But I think even more just from our business perspective is the opportunity for high ownership is back. Um, And that's just a result of less capital in the market. And combined with that, 
you have a little bit more time to get to know people. Yeah, I mean, last year, I think deals were getting done. It, it felt like in a few days where the time to diligence was non-existent, multiple term sheets, and it does seem like it's reverted back to what we have at least seen historically, where you can actually get to know, you can actually diligence. Some of the uh, the conversations are more around the the health of the business from a unit economic standpoint, cost of acquisition, and things that just generally speaking are the marks of really good, strong, viable businesses. And since we are talking a little bit about some of the uh, the global change, we had a guest on um, a guy named Frank Rotman from QED Investors. And one of the things that Frank mentioned is the venture market has grown substantially. And since you guys started in 2010, I think it's expanded by probably four or five X in terms of the number of firms. And his comment was that the vast majority of venture investors are actually strategically bankrupt in that they don't really have strategies to provide true alpha. Last 10 years, you could play the beta game and you'd probably be fine by in many ways throwing darts and running any type of strategy. How do you look at the venture market today, given the growth and the multi-segmentation, right? Seed, multi-stage, niche, the uh, the aircraft carrier type of firms that are the uh, the big established brands. Are there areas, and of course you run a, a niche-focused firm that's multi-stage, but do you think there's certain strategies that are better positioned to succeed on a go-forward basis? given where we are, not only in the market today, but what we might see in the future. We have a lot of different kinds of LPs, gigantic sovereign wealth funds, um, large endowments, small endowments, many different styles of family office, multi-family offices, funds, funds, et cetera. And I've come to understand that they, they don't have a monolithic view on why they want to work with a manager, right? So there is some part of the market that is appropriate for what George Roberts and Henry Kravitz sort of pioneered, you know, almost 40 years ago, which is basically um, there are LPs out there in the world whose main problem is I need to put money to work at a relatively stable return. And I'm willing to accept a lower return for that as long as I can continue to write a bigger and bigger check. So there will be a part of the market that does that. And, you know, that kind of kind of started with the first vision fund, although I think they were picking the wrong assets to do that strategy with. And then Tiger, I think, did it extremely well. My guess is like that portfolio will come back uh, quite a bit. Uh, so everyone, you know, having schadenfreude over it is, I think, a bit early. There are different products within this style of investing we call venture capital for different LPs. We're just one very specific arrow in people's quiver. The alpha that we're trying to provide is in our decision-making process in within a sector that has just an enormous amount of beta positively. I just think fintech is, I don't know, it's eight, it's eight to 10% consumer-facing eight to 10% of most, most economies. And you usually have 40 to 80% of the population who's not well served by the incumbent industry. So this is just where you can use technology to serve people cheaply. And as you financialize that part of the economy, that's not well served, that 8% grows to 9% or even 10% over the next decade. And that's just going to output some very big companies. 
And we've seen that in established economies, and we're seeing that in emerging economies. So, like, we don't, I agree with Frank, like, you, you know, you don't have to be a genius to be good at fintech investing. But if you want to provide more than just the fintech beta, I think that you have to have some process for working with companies that is going to, at a fun level, provide returns that are top decile. And for us, what that means is the ability to consistently have very high ownership. I've been told our returns are top decile by some of our LPs. And somehow, I should like never say this in fundraising type conversations, but somehow we've managed to studiously avoid every big winner, right? We're like, we're not in Stripe, we're not in Revolut, we're not in Plaid, we're not in New Bank or any of the awesome ones. We're in some really great companies. But the reason our returns are very high is that we, when we have high ownership in a company that then goes on to become worth two, three, five, six, even 10 billion, and it's a relatively high proportion of the fund that it's in, that drives returns. And so most, most people's partnership setup screws up their portfolio construction. So like that's a, a kind of structural source of alpha that we're very jealous of changing. You've mentioned some of these high-flying companies and the companies that you were in, many of them actually have scaled fairly large into billions of dollars of private market cap. But when you look at back at some of the companies that you did miss and perhaps some of those companies you saw, are there any commonalities of why you miss those companies and then extracting any lessons that you've learned along the way, either from an investing standpoint or at least a decision modeling standpoint that's that's really changed and shifted with some of those uh, experiences? Well, laziness is just, is one. And I mean, intellectual laziness and actual just laziness. The Chime Series B. You know, we had invested in TransferWise. We had invested in N26. We invested in Stash. And I was just like, I don't know. Another Neobank. But the right, the right answer was, uh, he's very well referenced and like, we should, I should have just taken the call. I should just have come with a beginner's mind. Stupid, stupid me. Right? So like, we don't I try very hard not to do that anymore. It's really not about my idea of, are there enough of X type of business out there? It's of course, at the early stage about people, right? We can always go back to Peter's iconic Facebook investment. He was trying to be a hedge fund manager, a macro guy. He wasn't at all thinking about venture investments. And while John Dora decided to do clean tech, he was, you know, I was thinking about whether oil had peaked. But he had he had deal flow because he had just exited PayPal and not many people were doing internet investing. And, you know, famously, like Mark first went to Reed. And Reed's like, well, I'm kind of like doing a social network of my own. Like you should go talk to my friend Peter. And we had this office in 555 California at the time. And, you know, they showed up and I know his, his thought process was just like, wow, this guy seems super smart. Looks like it's working. Let's do it. And trying to relentlessly stick to that grassroots sort of bottom-up type of thinking within a framework, right? Within the framework of fintech, I think is what will work for us because you're always being flattered by people. Like people want you to give them money and it is just so tempting to think that you know a lot, but, but we're definitionally in, in an industry where 
We don't know. We don't know what the future is going to look like. We don't know. And so we always have to resist this idea that it's like, oh, it's all over. It's just all been done before. How many older generations have made that mistake? There's some study, some academic study I saw somewhere where they tried to find the age at which an individual GP's like returns started trailing downwards. Like when did they peak and when did they start going downwards? And it was to my benefit, it was somewhere right around my age, like 46. <laughs> it sort of peaks around then and starts going down. So all the LPs who listen to this, this is your chance to get in at the peak. And I think that my, you know, they didn't come up with like a great reason why they just said that's, that's what we found. But I think it's because you just developed this scar tissue where like, well, that didn't work and this didn't work and this can never work again. And there's just been too many of these. And the young guys who come up don't have that problem. Right. They're, they're willing to just totally be open to smart people with a little bit of traction, building the future. They've got to take some big swings. Otherwise, they won't get to raise their second fund. I, I do think that explains a lot of why first-time funds have such good records, ironically, is they're not tied down to history, and they have to take some risk to, to get a second time. The loss aversion is typically lower in some cases, not all, but in some cases, primarily because at the early stages, you actually don't have a lot to lose. You're just starting off. You're building a franchise. There tends to be a higher level of alignment, too, with both the founders and, and the LPs. And actually, the historic returns, and, and some of this is survivorship bias, of course, but some of the, the fun ones that have done well have not only done well, but they've done you know, well to the degree of returning 50 to 100x plus in certain cases. And I, and I do think that the lack of baggage is actually quite important because a lot of us that have been in the industry for a long time, you start to realize that you have to constantly question some of your biases and the map's not always the territory. And it's easy for us to say that, but it's really hard to execute on. So I'm not surprised about some of the, the stats that you threw out, or at least the study that you mentioned. I want to end maybe with a, you know, more of a broader question, personal question around your career, because I, I really like working at a hedge fund, working at a restaurant, doing your own venture fund, working at a company like PayPal so early. But if you look back foundationally, is there any single event or piece of advice that really has influenced your career the most? Yes. I can remember it like perfectly in my mind right now. In our first restaurant, Fuzan, it was um, it was for a period of time, let's say 2004, 2005. It was like the hot place in San Francisco. It was, you know, we had Robert Redford in one night and Kevin Spacey in another night. And the place was jammed. We were losing a lot of money. We hired this like crusty old restaurant consultant. Like if you've ever met these type of guys, like they're to just like real cynical, hard-bitten dudes. And I just like, I showed him around the whole restaurant and I was like, here's our sommelier and here's our director of beverages and here's our five bartenders. And here's Daniel Patterson crying out loud was our chef. Like it was really crazy. And he's, and, and I, and I was like thinking like how well it was going. And he was like, man, you're going to die. 
And I was like, what do you mean I'm going to die? He's like, like, you, like you, look at all these people you have. Like, you don't need all these people. And then I, like, I just kept coming up with, like, reasons why, like, I needed this person. I needed that person. He just, he just looked at me and he's like, nobody is going to come to the rescue. Nobody's going to fix this but you. So figure out what you need to do to make money and go and do it. And it was every, every entrepreneur at some point has that time where they have to look into the void and figure out like what's looking back. Yeah. And it's so analogous to, uh, you know, what we're doing right now, which you have, you know, startups that are doing well from uh, the number of people coming in, selling them things, but the business itself eventually needs to figure out a way to really make money. Love that story. And Andrew, thanks so much for being on and being so candid throughout our conversation. This has been really fun. Yeah, same here. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Andrew. To learn more about him or Valor, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes on the show, as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.